This is Plant-Based Briefing. Don't plants have feelings too? Responding effectively to 13 frequently asked questions about food, fiber, farm animals, and the ethics of diet, part one, by Karen Davis of United Poultry Concerns at upc-online.org. And I'm your host, Marian Erickson, and this is the curated content plant-based podcast. I record episodes of about 10 minutes or less every weekday, and this episode is a bit longer than that, so I'm going to split it into part one, which I'll read today, and part two tomorrow. Today's post is by Karen Davis. She's the president and founder of United Poultry Concerns. They're a nonprofit organization promoting the compassionate and respectful treatment of domestic fowl, including a sanctuary for chickens in Virginia. Karen's the author of numerous books, essays, articles, and campaigns advocating for these birds. Her latest book is called For the Birds, From Exploitation to Liberation, Essays on Chickens, Turkeys, and Other Domesticated Fowl. United Poultry Concerns' website is full of great information, and they have a great podcast called Hope for the Animals, hosted by longtime animal advocate Hope Bohannock. You can find it all at upc-online.org. Now let's get to today's plant-based briefing. Don't plants have feelings too? Responding effectively to 13 frequently asked questions about food, fiber, farm animals, and the ethics of diet, part one, by Karen Davis of United Poultry Concerns at upc-online.org. Number one, what about plants? Don't plants have feelings too? It is very possible that plants have sensitivities that we do not yet understand. Because plants do not have nervous systems and cannot run away from predators, it has generally been assumed that they do not experience pain and suffering. Recent scientific evidence suggests that the life of plants is more complex than we once thought. However, we do know that birds, mammals, and fish have well-developed nervous systems and pain receptors. Like us, they show pleasure and pain, and they present comparable evidence of fear and well-being. Animals cry out in pain, they nurse wounded body parts, and they seek to avoid those who have hurt them in the past. In order to live, one has to eat. However, when we eat animal products, we consume many more plants indirectly than if we ate those plants directly, because the animals we eat are fed huge quantities of grasses, grains, and seeds to be converted into meat, milk, and eggs. As a vegan, one who eats no animal products, you cause fewer beings to suffer and die for you. Number two, what will we do with all the animals if we stop eating them? Won't they overrun the earth? Farm animals will not overrun the earth if we stop eating them because we will no longer intentionally breed them as we do now. Parent flocks and herds are deliberately maintained by artificial insemination, genetic selection, bizarre lightning schedules, and other manipulations to force them to produce billions of offspring each year. This inflated population will fade as people stop eating animal products. In time, as David Gabby states in Why Do Vegetarians Eat Like That?, Farm animals could be left to fend for themselves. Some would make out fine, others would struggle to keep from becoming extinct. But like all animals, except humans, they would adjust their numbers in accordance with the conditions around them. In the meantime, we have to remember that we, not they, are responsible for their predicament. We have an obligation to find ways to ease the transitional period for these animals. Number three. Farm animals have been bred for domestication. Haven't they lost their natural instincts? They can't survive on their own, can they? If we stop providing for them, won't they die of starvation and failure to reproduce? On the one hand, we're afraid that farm animals will overrun the earth. On the other hand, we worry that they'll become extinct. 
feral chickens, pigs, and other farm animals. And note that feral refers to domesticated animals who have become self-sustaining again. Successfully resume their natural activities given the chance. They forage, graze, mate, raise their young, socialize, and get along very well without humans. Farm animals are much more autonomous and resilient than is commonly supposed. Otherwise, it is better for creatures afflicted with human-created defects not to be born. People who think it is all right to imprison animals in genetically impaired bodies and who then get testy about their becoming extinct are indulging in cynicism and sentimentality. Call their bluff and move on to other issues. Number four, is confinement so terrible? After all, farmers protect their animals from bad weather and predators and provide them with food, water, and shelter. Isn't that better than being in the wild? Slave traders and slaveholders argued that it was better to be a slave in a, quote, civilized Christian society than to be at liberty in a heathen jungle. The same rationalization is used to justify expropriating and subjugating other species. Producers tell the public that farm animals prefer three meals a day to life in the wild. In fact, the, quote, wild is a human projection onto areas of the earth and modes of being that are alien and inhospitable to our species. The wild isn't, quote, wild to the animals who live there. It is their home. Animals in wall-to-wall confinement are forced to live in a situation that expresses human nature, not theirs. If they preferred to be packed together without contact with the world outside, then we would not need intensive physical confinement facilities since they would voluntarily cram together and save us money. It is illogical to argue that humans protect farm animals from, quote, predators. We are their predator. Moreover, by confining them, we subject them to many more non-human predators in the form of parasites and other disease organisms than they would otherwise encounter. By locking them up, we prevent them from using their natural flight-or-fight abilities so that when a predator, such as the farmer, comes along, they cannot escape. Millions more animals die of heat stress and other climatic conditions in intensive confinement facilities than they would in nature. The inability of confined farm animals to exercise their natural defenses and self-assertion induces pathological stress leading to immune system breakdown. Only by twisted standards can apathy and atrophy be regarded as benefiting an animal. Number five, if farm animals are treated as badly as you say, why are they so productive? Wouldn't they stop producing meat, milk, and eggs if they were treated inhumanely? Farm animals can be profoundly mistreated and still, quote, produce, in the same way that profoundly mistreated humans can be overweight, sexually active, and able to produce offspring. Like humans, farm animals can adapt, up to a point, to living in slums and concentration camp conditions. Is this an argument for slums and concentration camps? Farm animals do not gain weight, lay eggs, and produce milk because they are comfortable, content, or well cared for, but because they have been manipulated specifically to do these things through genetics, medications, and management techniques. For example, cage-layer producers artificially stimulate and extend egg production by keeping the lights burning for 16 or 17 hours a day to force the hen's pituitary gland to secrete increased quantities of the hormone that activates the ovary. Animals in production agriculture are slaughtered at extremely young ages before disease and death have decimated them as would otherwise happen, even with all the drugs. 
Even so, many more individual animals suffer and die in intensive farming, but because the volume of animals being used is so big, in the billions, the losses are economically negligible, while the volume of flesh, milk, and eggs is abnormally increased. Number six, what difference does it make how we treat farm animals? They're going to die anyway, aren't they? The fact that giving farm animals a decent life before killing them can be seriously questioned represents an important reason to stop raising them for food. It is not that they are going to die anyway that seems to justify our mistreatment of them when they are alive. We are all going to die, but we do not generalize the argument, but that we are deliberately going to kill them. There is a felt inconsistency in valuing a creature so little and yet insisting that he or she be granted a semblance of tolerable existence prior to execution. So wanton can our disrespect for our victims become that any churlish sentiment or behavior seems fit to exercise. It is contemptible to assert that humans have no responsibility or that it makes no sense to enrich the life of a being brought into the world merely to suffer and die for us. The situation confers greater rather than lesser or no obligations on us towards those at our mercy. You just listened to Don't Plants Have Feelings Too? Responding effectively to 13 frequently asked questions about food, fiber, farm animals, and the ethics of diet, part one, by Karen Davis of United Poultry Concerns at upc-online.org. And I'm your host, Marian Erickson. Tune in tomorrow for the second part of this article. Thanks for listening.